Well, thanks for the introduction, Tim. Uh, I, I do attend Athens Church, member of Athens Church in Columbus, but I don't want to give the impression that I'm the pastor there. I'm a ret- retired high school teacher from Greensburg, and uh, so, so I don't have a lot of theological background. I took a theology course in college many, many years ago, and I think I got a C in it. And uh, probably just as well, if you knew the professors, that might be a good thing in itself. So, but what a great blessing it is to get to come and talk this morning on a topic that Christians often don't talk about. I think we're kind of embarrassed about it, or we're sort of unsure about it. And the topic is heaven. And, uh, well, maybe just sort of being here and having a time for live fellowship and thinking back to what it was like, like uh, not too long ago, when we didn't have to wear face masks and be socially distanced and uh, worry about singing songs and all those things that are just very real concerns right now. It's like all those things that we took for granted are almost unimaginable. I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago that put into words a lot better than I could some of my thoughts about the weirdness of these times. The article is titled, The Before Time, A Sci-Fi Idea That Has Made Its Way to Real Life. And the writer starts by saying, do you remember what life was like before, say, March? It can seem like a foggy memory, back before the coronavirus pandemic made social distancing and self-isolation the ruling principles of everyday life. When referring to that pre-pandemic era, many people have seized on a darkly humorous phrase with an air of science fiction, the before time. The shorthand phrase for an era before a catastrophe has now become part of our pandemic vocabulary. Well, I'm old enough, most of you aren't old enough, remember there was a TV series back in the 1960s called Star Trek. And I watched Star Trek faithfully every week. And I actually remember, and I went back to check it out on on Netflix to make sure I had it right, and I was. There's an episode from the first season in 1966 called Miri. And it's a story where where Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock and and, uh, Dr. McCoy are beamed down to a planet in response to a distress signal. And when they get to this planet, it's very much like Earth, but they find out that all the adults are dead, and the only survivors on the planet are adolescents. And the reality is, they find, that the entire adult population has been wiped out by a virus that escaped from a lab. They might want to check this one out. And it just kind of struck me, it's like, wow, it's like the before time. The kids all call it the before time, back when adults were there and life was normal. Well, we kind of get that now. It's like, it's hard to remember almost already what life was like just a few months ago. And we wonder if things are ever going to get back to what life was like in the before time, before COVID-19. But as Christians, we're called to remember not just the before times. We're promised an after time that's going to be infinitely better than anything that we've ever experienced before, no matter how great life was or how good life was or how much we took for granted before COVID-19. The after time that's promised in the Bible in heaven is so much better than anything we've had. If we're honest and realistic, if we have a high view of God and a high view of Scripture, we actually have to see that our before time, even though it's a lot better than right now, really wasn't all that great. You guys have just finished a series on God's attributes, and what a great thing to study. You know, just recognizing who God is and, and, and what his characteristics are is something we could always be blessed by. And you've seen that he's great, he's almighty, he's majestic, he's trustworthy, he is Emmanuel, he's God with us, and he is the Lord of all. Those attributes are evident from the beginning, starting in Genesis 1-1. 
and we see them developed all the way through the Bibles. We look at the Bibles as one great narrative uh, from beginning to end. And we see all these attributes, especially as God gives us himself in the person of Jesus Christ, so that when these present realities of pain and pandemic fade away with the promise of restoration to come, we have a hope when Jesus comes back to fix everything that's broken and make everything right. By God's amazing grace, we get this revelation of what it looks like, at least uh, a partial description of what it looks like in the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, where we see the Bible's greatest and clearest description of heaven, where not only people, but actually all of creation are going to be restored. They're going to be made new. If you have your Bible open or your app handy, you may want to take a look at this week's text with me from the end of John's letter to the churches. It'll be Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7, and then verses 22 through 25, and then 22, verses 1 through 7. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated in the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Again, going to verse 22, John continues, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, that is Jesus Christ, are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by his light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On that day, its gates will be never shut, for there will be no night there. In the first part of chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the street of the great city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the lamp, light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. So the Bible assures God's people from Genesis through Revelation that God has this great plan to bring his people to their promised inheritance, which is a place in his eternal kingdom. So for King Christians, the after time is really going to be the eternal time. It's going to be this awesome forever time when we live in God's presence. And it's good for us to just remember what the Bible says about heaven. 
We should remember that nothing in the Bible is written here just because some ancient guy decided to write something down that was creative or philosophical or theological or historical. Every line is here for a purpose. And God's purposes and promises and plans are ultimately revealed and realized in this book of Revelation. I mean, we're just sort of scratching the surface here. But uh, it's great. This letter from Jesus Christ to his churches has this message of encouragement and the promise of victory for its original audience 1,900 years ago and for every Christian in every time ever since until Christ returns. And these descriptions of heaven and revelation and all through the Bible are meant to do a lot more than just inspire books and movies about how heaven is real or what it might look like to be left behind or to make us ignore present reality or to give us some childish idea about God's glory. Heaven means that we have something infinitely greater to expect, to look forward to, to anticipate now, and to live for now. It means that God is giving us a glimpse of his and our future glory. Reading scripture texts about heaven reminds us that in the end, all the brokenness of this world, no matter whether it's wars or pandemics or injustice, it's all temporary. And we have this hope to get us past just thinking about ourselves and our current troubles and instead to focus on glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. So we're going to take a quick look at heaven this morning. We're not going to cover it all. Don't worry. Uh, We're going to take a look at three things heaven isn't and three things that heaven is. Now, by the way, I'm doing the best I can as a layman to like focus on the Scriptures to just stick to what the Bible says But I know from teaching the Bible and BSF and stuff that that throughout history, people have sort of misunderstood what the Bible said, even people with good intentions. And so if I get anything wrong, when we're in heaven one of these days and you see me on the streets, you can just kind of wink at me and it'll all be good, right? We're going to have forever to figure it out. So three things that heaven isn't. The first thing that heaven isn't is not limited by John's descriptions in his visions recorded in Revelation. And it's not limited by any other description in the Bible, and it's not limited by human imagination. We can get way too caught up in trying to draw mental or physical pictures based on what Scripture says, or much worse than that, based on just like human ideas about heaven. I mean, people have all these weird ideas, and you know, I've grown up with them in comics and cartoons and Maybe you have too. Like, well, heaven is this place where when you get there, it's all like puffy and clouds and St. Peter's waiting at this little gate. And, and, and when you get there, you go up. And, and if you're lucky or good enough, like St. Peter will let you in. And maybe a bell will ring and you'll get wings, you know, and, and, and you'll get your own cloud and maybe a, 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 your own lyre, your, your, your harp to play. You know, that's like, so, that's like so non-biblical. Where do people get these ideas? And yet that's sort of like the basis of a lot of what, of what our pop culture says heaven is like. C.S. Lewis addresses that particular issue in Mere Christianity in his title, chapter titled Hope, where he says, There is no need to be worried by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying they do not want to spend eternity playing harps. The answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. Second thing that heaven is not, it's not an excuse to do nothing or be lazy until we get there. There's this old cliche about Christians. Well, Christians are so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. Well, like a lot of cliches or generalizations, there can be a kernel of truth to that. If people don't see heaven properly, it can become an excuse 
instead of an incentive. But we see throughout the history of the church for the last 2,000 years that the hope of heaven is actually the greatest motivator to do the greatest earthly good. The sociologist and historian Rodney Stark has written a book titled The Rise of Christianity. If you like church history or just history in general, the Columbus Library has it where I first read it. But he explains how the church rose from this tiny fraction of the percentage of the Roman population in the first century, maybe 5% in the year 100 when, Paul, or when John recorded Revelation, to being over half the population of the Roman Empire by the beginning of the third century, by the end of the third century. So in 200 years, the percentage of Christians in the population of the Roman Empire goes from under 5% to over 50%. And he has all kinds of historic data to sort of explain how that happened. But the single most important set of events that Professor Stark picks out to explain the rise of Christianity, other than God's divine work, is something that happened during these two terrible pandemics that swept through the Roman Empire in the second and third centuries. The first started in the year 165 AD. The second started in the year 251. There's not a test. Don't worry about the dates. We're not even exactly sure today what the disease was. Uh, Modern medical experts think that it was maybe some form of measles or smallpox. But this was a terrible, deadly plague, far, far worse than than, than COVID-19 or even the Spanish influenza of 1918 through 1920. At its worst, in the first plague, it was killing 2,000 people a day in Rome, just the city of Rome itself, with a population of about a million during the first plague. During the second plague, a century later, it was killing 5,000 people a day, 35,000 people a week just in the city of Rome. Now, people didn't really understand germs and viruses at that time, but they did know that people who were in contact with the sick tended to get sick. And there were two responses to these epidemics. The first one, not too hard to imagine even today, we kind of still see it, especially in our media, and that is panic. And the response to the panic was, if you were wealthy enough, and the doctors especially were the ones who were sort of guilty of this, the response was to flee the cities. It's just to get out of town, save yourselves, and leave the sick behind to die. The second response, evidenced only in the lives of Christians, was to stay and to take care of the sick and to do the best they could to help both their own families and thousands of their pagan neighbors. A Christian survivor of the plague called Dionysus wrote, Many in nursing and curing others have transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The heathen behaved in the opposite way. They pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the road before they were dead. Now, obviously, if the ill people in any pandemic, whether it's 2,000 years ago or today, are just left alone, most of them are going to die. But we know today that pretty much in any plague, any epidemic that goes to the world, if people get basic medical care, if they get food and water and someone trying to take care of them, 60%, even in the worst pandemics, are going to survive. Christians in those pandemics do what the world says is suicidal. They run toward the trouble instead of away from it. And why do those Christians do that? It's because they have two great hopes. The first is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which tells us to love others as we love ourselves, to place the interests of others ahead of our own, to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And the second great hope they have is the promise of eternity in God's presence, that makes any and all suffering in this life insignificant. 
Those Christians believed the words that Paul had written to the church in Rome when he said in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So the result of the Christians hanging in there and being Christ-like in those pandemics was that far fewer Christians died as a percent of the population. And many thousands and thousands of non-Christians know they owe their lives to Christians, and they see Christ in action. And they realize that Christians really aren't this crazy, wacko cult that's out to destroy the empire, but they're good people who love others, and they take the word of their Savior, Jesus Christ, seriously. <clears throat> they, take their, they put their promises, put their confidence in the promises of God's word. And in the long run, many of those pagans became Christians. And that changes the world. Now, we shouldn't think that the Christians got together when these pandemics broke out and thought, hey, if we like are like really nice and sort of take care of ourselves and like be a good example to the others, we'll convert the empire and take it over. It wasn't like there was some kind of political conspiracy there. They simply did what was right because they had biblical hope, including the hope of heaven. C.S. Lewis, again, has some good thoughts. Lewis writes, hope is one of the great theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean they are ready to lead the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since heavens have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. The third thing that heaven is not it's not universally accepted. Now, I want to preface these remarks by acknowledging that human beings do have some internal innate sense of some greater reality. But in many age, most people are going to deny heaven as it's revealed in Holy Scriptures. Whether we're thinking about people in the ancient Greco-Roman world of the New Testament, or the atheists that led the French Revolution in the late 1700s, or the totalitarian ideologies that have so infected the human race in the 20th century, all people have created both God, or a God, and heaven in their own images and using their own imaginations. You know, the ancient Romans, if you remember your mythology, if you ever had that in school, there was this idea that there's the God at the land of the dead, Pluto or Hades, and when you die, you go to the underworld, and there's this sort of shadowy existence where everybody goes, good or bad, but there's nothing in that Greco-Roman idea of an afterlife to motivate sacrificial, loving life and service in this world. By the 18th century and going through the 20th century, we see the rise of modern materialism and atheism. We see like the French Revolution and Marxist theory in the 19th century and communism and fascism in the 20th century. They all reject overtly the truth of the Bible, including the truth of heaven. But they all, every one of them, promises some form of paradise or heaven on earth when their revolutions are completed. From the workers' paradise that was foreseen by Karl Marx to the thousand-year Reich that was promised by Hitler. 
And even in our pop culture, more recently, we, we see things like the popular song by John Lennon, the Beatles in the 1960s. The song Imagine includes the words, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. Imagine all the people living for today. Well, the problem is it has been tried. And we don't have to imagine what's going to happen. Man, left to himself, believes Satan's lies, that we can decide everything for ourselves, and that we can save ourselves. But man without God will always act primarily for self-preservation, which means the powerful will always abuse the weak. And the weak are without much hope of much of anything except just survival if they obey the powerful. If you study ancient cultures, if you study what's going on in our world today, we see what happens when revolutions and dictatorships promise a paradise on earth. But who can honestly say, even with our medical miracles and our amazing technology and our material prosperity, that humankind, left to ourselves, can create anything like heaven by living for today. No political party, no ideology, no human leader is ever going to make this world into heaven. The kingdom of God is not going to arrive on Air Force One. But the world's increasingly blind. You know, Isaiah wrote 27 centuries ago about people who have eyes but see not and people who have ears but hear not. The situation hasn't changed, except when by God's grace we get a glimpse of the truth and God calls us and empowers us to accept that truth. And we realize that the beauty of it changes everything and it gives us a hope. So a first thought to kind of leave with today is that heaven's not just imagination or excuse. Heaven is not just imagination or excuse. So how do we get away from these false ideas that kind of permeate our whole culture? You know, that heaven, if it even exists, is just some boring place, or it's just something we create on our own, or it's this pie-in-the-sky dream that's distracting us from the real work that we should be doing. Where are you and I still influenced by those biblically indefensible ideas. And what are we doing to learn more about what our biblical hope really is? Well, let's go quickly now to to what heaven is. Just three things we're going to take a look at. First, heaven is taught specifically throughout the Bible. We're talking about heaven or what John refers to as the new heaven, the new earth, when the new Jerusalem comes in Revelation. But we haven't really defined heaven. So here's a quick generic definition. And it's biblical, by the way. It's the place where God dwells. Not a surprise to anyone. Heaven is the place where God dwells. Back in the Old Testament, the Lord says to Isaiah in chapter 66, heaven is my throne. In the New Testament, Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. If we look at Old Testament heroes like Moses and Isaiah, or New Testament heroes like John and Paul in the New Testament, we do get some partial views or glimpses of heaven. For example, Moses like, gets this glimpse of God in Exodus chapter 24. But all he can do is just like describe the pavement under God's feet. He realizes that he cannot look fully on God and live. In Isaiah chapter 6, like one of the really cool chapters of Isaiah, the prophet says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So here's Isaiah giving this glimpse into God's throne room, and all he can do is like describe just the hem of God's garment. In the New Testament, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about a man in Christ, most scholars think that he's talking about himself, 
who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Well, in first century Jewish thinking, the first heaven was the sky, just looking up and seeing the sky. The second heaven is what we would call the universe. The third heaven would be the dwelling place of God. But even when John, or when Paul describes this guy, probably himself, all he can say was that it was just an inexpressible experience. And then we have John in Revelation. You know, I hope you all study Revelation someday and dig into it. In chapters 4 and 5, John goes to the throne room of God in heaven, and he describes a rainbow around the throne and these four fantastic living creatures and 24 elders and, and, and millions of creatures praising God but he can't describe God himself. His vocabulary is just not adequate. The most that any of the great people of Scripture can say is that God is amazing. He is glorious. He is, like, totally awesome. But what the Bible's writers see, even when they can't really describe it very well, it changes them. They give up focusing on hardships and suffering in this broken world because the glory that they see of God is more than enough to keep them going and serving the Lord. The vision of God's glorious presence inspires their love of Christ. It gives them this great gratitude to God, and it inspires service for the kingdom of God. We see another astounding example of this in Acts chapter 7. There's this young Christian named Stephen. This is not too long after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And the Jewish leadership in Rome is, or in, 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 in Jerusalem, sorry, is, is questioning these early apostles and disciples, and Stephen is explaining how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He's like, he's what it's all about, and they don't like what they're hearing. They start to get really angry and hostile. Doesn't stop Stephen. In fact, he's, he's so full of the Holy Spirit that he looks up, and he actually has this vision of the glory of God and Jesus standing at God's right hand, and he actually like throws gasoline in their fire when he says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, doing that doesn't do Stephen any earthly good. He's going to be stoned to death for his trouble. But it shows his commitment to the reality of heaven, even to the end. We shouldn't be surprised that Jesus talks about heaven. He gives very specific promises. In John 14, he's talking to the disciples on the night before his crucifixion. And he says to them, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come and be with you to take you be with me, that you may be where I am. Revelation 21 and 22 focus on the new heaven and the new earth at the end of human history, at the end of this present phase of reality, after the final judgment. But there's a question that a lot of us have, and, and, and reasonably so, what about people when they die now? What about now? Do people, you know, believers go to heaven when they die? And the answer is yes, but also not quite yet. And if we look at the Bible, there's a difference between heaven at this time in history and the new heaven and the new earth that's coming as revealed in Revelation at the end of history. Theologians call heaven now an intermediate state. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And in his letter to the Philippians, Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. 
I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. See, Paul's not expecting some long gap between his death and his entering Jesus' presence. We get the very same message from Jesus in Matthew 22. He's talking to a crowd of uh, Sadducees and others in Jerusalem, and he explains heaven to people, and he says, Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, Jesus is saying, those Old Testament saints, dead for centuries at this point, were living with God at that very moment. So believers who die go immediately into God's presence. Jesus tells the criminal being executed beside him at Calvary, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. At the moment we take our last breath, our eyes open, and we see Jesus' face. But it's still an intermediate state. It is far better than anything we can experience in this life, and yet it's not all that it's going to be. It is a place where there's joyful, purposeful, worshipful waiting until the new heaven and the new earth described in Revelation arrive. A second thing that heaven is, it's a great motivation for storing up treasures somewhere other than on earth. You may have heard the quote from the great uh, missionary and martyr, James Elliot, Jim Elliot, who was killed in the 1950s, but his most famous quote is, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. When we consider that everything everything, even the best things in this current creation are temporary, and that life in the new creation is forever, we really can't help but having different priorities. Like Paul, and like those Christians who were so different from the unbelievers around them in those plagues in the Roman Empire, and like Christian martyrs in our time who have a knife being held at their throat by Islamic terrorists, but they refuse to deny Christ. Peter says this brilliantly in 2 Peter chapter 3, He writes, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When we have a high view of God, when we have a high view of Scripture, when we're really placing our faith in Jesus Christ, we have different priorities and we have different motivations from unbelievers. Notice that Jesus is not saying here, guard your treasure. He's saying, choose your treasure. The doctrine of heaven is a reminder to choose wisely. It's a reminder to take the long view. It's a reminder to, take, uh, to really consider carefully, what's my return on investment? And there's a third truth about heaven. It's the fulfillment of everything that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in what we call the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, you can say this with me, I'll bet you all know it, but let's go ahead and say it together. Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Man, I never really thought about this until I started studying this text and the idea of heaven, but I never thought about how Jesus' instruction in prayer is ultimately pointing us to heaven, where all the things that are described in Revelation 21 and 22, this after time, become total reality for those who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Our Father in heaven is going to be addressed personally, publicly, directly on his throne by us, his people, in his presence, because heaven comes down to earth. And when that happens, we're going to be like those 24 elders and the four living creatures and the angels and the millions of people from every nation and tribe and people and language that John sees and describes in Revelation 4 through 7. We will all perfectly hallow or praise or glorify God's name forever. And it's not going to be boring. Revelation 21, 1 and 2 describe the kingdom coming, the kingdom coming fully, completing what Jesus Christ began with his life in this, on this earth. And God's will is done totally, completely, all the time with no distractions in the restored creation because God's presence there allows nothing else but his goodness. God gives his people their daily bread with water from the river of life and fruit from the tree of life. And our debts are forgiven. That's actually a prerequisite for being in God's presence. It's accomplished by the lamb who was slain. Praise to God for giving us Jesus Christ so that we can have our debts forgiven. And we've forgiven our debtors. We're healed from the virus of bitterness and anger. Maybe that's part of what the leaves of the tree are for in Revelation 22 too. And at that time, evil has been defeated. All the evildoers have been expelled. Chapter 21, verse 21, 7 says that nothing impure will ever enter heaven. So when we say the Lord's Prayer, we should think not only of how God responds now in this life circumstances, but also we have a hope that's fully realized perfectly and permanently in heaven. Because heaven is the great hope for every believer now and forever. Heaven really is the great hope for every believer now and forever. It's good for us once in a while to think, you know, we're like, what really is my greatest hope? You know, if you were to write down, you know, today, you know, what is my greatest hope? Thinking about heaven probably changes how we might answer that question. Are our hopes changing as we see God's promises more clearly? Christians often seem so biblically illiterate and even embarrassed by the doctrine of heaven. But God's promise and provision of the eternal aftertime in his presence is truly where every Christian's best hopes come true. It is so much better than any before times. You know, that's not what we should be looking forward to is like getting back to normal. We should be looking forward to the infinitely better new normal that we have waiting for us in heaven. When we experience perfectly and we see clearly how great and how almighty and how majestic and how trustworthy God is, and where he literally is Emmanuel, God with us, and where we see him on the throne as Lord of all, where we'll glorify God and where we'll really truly enjoy him forever. Let's pray. 
Father, you are totally faithful. We thank you for your promise of the ultimate after time when you will bring your people into your kingdom. We pray for eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to grasp the truth and beauty of heaven. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.